Right, so over the next few weeks, we're going to go over the Olivet Discourse parables. And so instead of reading the entire chapter three weeks in a row, I figured we'd just do the portions that we're going to cover. And so uh, tonight, we're going to be looking at the parable of the ten virgins. Now, before we start going through this, um, in order to really do this subject justice, what I needed to have done was done a lot of preaching on the chapters before this, because that really ties in. And so I was uh, very perplexed about how to do this because I didn't really want to spend weeks and weeks on uh, these parables. But I really do want to cover these things. And um, hopefully uh, what I'll do, too, in the next couple weeks, I'll kind of some of the points that I'm going to be making in this message tonight, I will give additional proof in the next weeks because otherwise we'll be here all night. There's a really a lot of stuff here. The hopefully, hopefully will be a big help. So the parables of the Olivet Discourse, I do think are probably some of the most misunderstood parables of Jesus. There's a lot of interpretations of these parables, and it's very difficult to find consistency when it comes to how people are interpreting these things. And most people just use them for life application principles. Most preachings you hear from these, that's what it, the preaching is. And that's not wrong. I definitely think we should use the parables of Jesus and make life application out of them. But I also think it's important that we try to express the exact message Jesus was trying to express. I think we're going to miss something if we don't do that. And you're going to find out there's a reason a lot of people aren't dealing with the same things Jesus was. Because it'll mess up some treasured theology people have if they actually taught it the way Jesus did. And so the problem with these parables... Everyone tries to force them into whatever their theology is, and they do. They ignore the message Jesus was trying to give in that day. And that's what we're going to mainly focus on tonight. And the preterists, they try to make these parables all about events in the first century. And the futurists, they try to make all of these things about events that are still to come in the future. And the problem with both of these groups is they get both get some things right, but they're getting some things wrong at the same time. And so in this message, hopefully I can show you how we should interpret these. So let's go ahead and read a few verses and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about this. So it says, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise and five were foolish. So here we have the kingdom of heaven being like the ten virgins. You got wise virgins, you got foolish virgins. And obviously there's some meaning to this. Now, we all, if we wanted, we could just really go overboard and zero in on details more than we need to. And that's what people often do. And often when it comes to interpreting things like that, I mean, it's really just your word against my word. You know, everybody just like, well, I'll tell you what this represents. But like, well, where's the biblical proof? And we do have some parables in the Bible where Jesus specifically said, you know, this is what this means. And that's always helpful. But we don't have that in this. So that it's very important that we have some discipline in how we're interpreting these things and that we, you know, have some biblical basis. And a lot of people just don't. So um, what I want to do, so when I tell you what it meant for that day as we go through this is... It does not mean that it has nothing to do with the future, okay? I need everybody to let me preach through this chapter before you start throwing your rocks at me, okay? You got That's very important that you do that because here's what happens, and, and I like doing this on purpose, okay? I, I don't like doing it from the pulpit so much, but especially when I'm around other preachers, I love bringing these things up about past fulfillment because even post-trib people a lot of times ignore the, the past fulfillment of these things. And when you start telling them what it meant then, it makes so much sense that it freaks them out. Because they do, they start, you know, it, it does, it makes more sense than what they say a lot of times. And then they want, you know, they just start screaming preterist. And it's like, no, there's, we, we should, th these things shouldn't be complicated for us. Okay, so for example, let's go to the very first prophecy in the Bible. Okay, I think the very first prophecy that you could say it's in the Bible. Because, you know, I'll, I'll tell people how I interpret these things sometimes. They freak out and it's like, wait a minute, there's a bunch of prophecies that are interpreted exactly that way in the Bible. Everybody preaches it that way. Whether they're pre-trib, post-trib, 
They all preach it that way. But here's one in Genesis 2.16. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Now, here's the first thing I want you to notice about this. There's, first off, there's a contingency on this prophecy. Did you know that some prophecies have contingencies? The prophecies that they are given, they're often spoken in a way as if it's going to happen a certain way. But at the same time, and, and a lot of times the contingency is not explicitly stated. It's just kind of implied. That's the whole point of giving a prophecy is it is just kind of a warning. For example, when Jonah went into Nineveh, there was no contingency in that message. All he said is, yay, 40 days and Nineveh should be overthrown. Okay? There's no, there was no call to repentance in there. But at the same time, too, it's kind of implied in the fact that, you know, why would God send a messenger to tell us this unless he's giving us the chance to repent? And either way, they took, you know, they went ahead and they repented. And they, and you know what? It, the judgment didn't come. Now, here's the thing. It didn't come in that day. But you know what? Nineveh got overthrown, didn't it? But it was over 100 years later, after the time of Nahum. So understand, a lot of prophecies, when they, when they were given, they're given in a way where it's going to happen, but it doesn't have to be right now. Okay? There's, there's contingencies in there. And even this prophecy about eating the fruit, you know, it's, it's clearly spelled out in there. You know, it's, it's, well, it's you know, implied. If you don't eat the fruit, you're not going to surely die, right? But they ate the fruit. Now, here's the question. Did Adam die that day? Physically, no. But spiritually, yes. And that's what you got to understand about a lot of prophecies. Is a lot of prophecies had an immediate spiritual fulfillment. And much later, there was a physical fulfillment. And so Adam, I do. Yeah, he died spiritually the day he ate of that fruit just like the apostle paul talked about how when the uh, when the commandment came sin revived and i died what was he talking about spiritually but what guess what you just like all of us are you know or paul just like adam died spiritually eventually he did in fact die physically didn't he and why did he die physically because he ate of the fruit because he sinned so when we look at bible prophecies and somebody gets up and they preach about the spiritual fulfillment of something, it doesn't mean they're denying the physical. And most people, you know, in the futurist world, which includes us post-tribbers, we do, we, unfortunately, most are only preaching the physical fulfillment of these things. And we're ignoring the spiritual fulfillment. And if we would pay attention to that, the spiritual fulfillment, it would actually make the prophecy as a whole make a lot more sense. It would make the parable make more sense. And so uh, we can't just ignore that. It's, it's important that we don't ignore that. And so just you know, keep in mind that uh, you know, when I'm telling you, when we're talking about some of these past fulfillments, it doesn't mean it has nothing to do with the future. Okay? So just keep that in mind before you start throwing rocks at me. Okay? So, but anyway... Let's go through this parable, and I'll show you what I believe each thing represents. And remember, Jesus didn't specifically tell us what they meant in this parable. So what you have to remember, whenever someone tells you what something represents, you must check to see if what they are saying is consistent with clear doctrine. We do not get our doctrine from parables and symbols. Okay? We're not dispensationalists. Okay? We're not pre-tribbers. We go off clear scripture first, and then we'll interpret those other things based on the clear doctrine. Where you have in the pre-trib world, they're always ignoring clear scriptures, and then they're going off pictures, and they're just drawing their own conclusions. They'll tell, I'll tell you what this represents. Well, do you have any verse in the Bible that says that's what that represents? No, but I just, that's what all the theologians say. Now, that's not fair. Okay, we can make it, otherwise we can just make it whatever we want. So symbolism does. Symbolism has its place, but we don't get our doctrine from symbolism. And if I can disprove the doctrine that your symbolism supposedly teaches, then you know what? I don't have to address your symbolism. I proved you wrong when I proved your doctrine wrong. 
So again, if, I, if, if, I, if you ever see a debate between, you know, a pre-tribber and a post-tribber, if the post-tribber, or even if the pre-tribber, if they're able to show, hey, here's clear scripture that teaches something opposite of what you are saying the symbolism means, then you know what? The symbolism doesn't even need to be addressed because you've obviously got something wrong there. So we've got to get our priorities right in these things. And, you know, and here's the thing, too. You can have right doctrine and bad symbolism. Okay? Bad symbolism doesn't disprove the right doctrine. It just means you're finding things and passages that aren't there. I've heard people that are right on prophecy use symbolism, and it's like that is not what God was trying to do with that. Okay? And it's, it's pretty embarrassing what some people do with symbolism sometimes, but you've got to watch out for that. So, uh, you know, and so we can just make up things. All right? I, I came up with an illustration to prove a pre-trib rapture. All right? Since they're going to use symbolism, I'll use some symbolism. Now, I'm gonna, this, I, I came up with this all by myself. And let me tell you, if you think I am exaggerating with what I'm about to do, and I'm making fun, see me after church, and I'll show you some clips of preachers using this type of reason. Okay, this is not exaggeration. So, because I, I decided I was going to use some symbolism to prove preacher of rapture. It's all over in the Bible. Preachers find it all the time. But here's what I did. If you look up the word before in the Bible, all right. So we're going to have a debate between the before the tribulation people and after the tribulation people. The word before is in the Bible 1,799 times. You add up 1 plus 7 plus 9 plus 9, that equals 26. There are 27 books in the New Testament, 26 of them that come before Revelation that's for the Jews. And so since we are New Testament Christians, that proves we are out of here before the tribulation. Hi, man. Somebody run a glory lap. And then here's another thing, too. If you look up the word after, okay, if you want to look up after in the Bible, it's in the Bible 1,180 times. 1 plus 1 plus 8 plus 0 equals 10. 10 represents the Ten Commandments, and that's for the Jews. So this proves Jews go up after the tribulation. So there you go. So yeah. So that you, you, you pre-tribbers are always stealing the Jewish prophecies. You're always stealing the promises that belong to the Jews. Okay? Now, folks, I, that is not an exaggeration. I, I can show you clips of a preacher doing that, literally adding the numbers up like that. And it's just like, come on, people. And they will, listen, and stuff like that will trump immediately after the tribulation every time with these people. And that is absolutely ridiculous. So, but anyway, but when it comes to this parable, there was an immediate spiritual fulfillment that we're going to talk about. And someday there is going to be a physical fulfillment. All right, so let's go ahead and go through this. So again, verse 1, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Now when Christ came to the earth, Christ came looking for a bride, and Christ was looking for a virgin bride. That's, that is what he wanted. The bridegroom had actually showed up three years early, or and was presented to Israel by John the Baptist. In John 3.28, it says, Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. So, would we all agree that it makes sense that the bridegroom is Jesus Christ in this story? And the bride, that's who Jesus came looking for. When the bridegroom shows up in this parable, he's looking for a bride. And when Jesus came, at Jesus' coming, at Christ's coming, okay, he came for a bride. Now, when Christ came for that bride, I'm here today to tell you that Israel was supposed to be that bride, but Israel was not ready. Israel was not ready when the bridegroom came. You know why? Because they didn't have any oil in their lamp. Now, what does that represent? What is that talking about? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. But Matthew 9, 14 says, Then came to him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast off, but thy disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. So Jesus definitely is the bridegroom, and he is there with him during that time, and he, Christ showed up at his coming, 
for Brian. Now, we've made this in the futurist world all about just that one moment. You know, when the bridegroom comes in the clouds and he immediately takes us. But understand, the coming of Christ, it was in the first century. Jesus Christ came. We call it his first coming. And when he came, he came for a bride. Now, he didn't get one. And, and there's a reason for that. But remember, prophecies have contingencies, don't they? And Jesus Christ, when he came for that bride in the first century, they were not ready. They were, they were not ready during that time. And that doesn't mean he's not going to come in the future and fulfill all those things. Okay? The, the, the physical fulfillment is going to take place, even though there was a spiritual fulfillment that took place during that time. But the, filth, the physical nation of Israel was not worthy to be the bride of Christ because of the filthiness of their sin. They were dirty. I mean, look at what the New Testament, the New Test, or the Old Testament was constantly talking about them, you know, being whores and harlots and all, I mean, just constantly calling them out for those things. They were not a virgin bride when Jesus showed up. They were filthy. And when Christ comes, he wants a pure bride. He wants a, he wants a virgin. Ephesians 2, 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And you know what? Israel, they were not capable of being that pure bride of Christ. You know why? Because you can't be a chaste virgin by the keeping of the law. And that's what people say, oh, you know, you replacement people, you know, you think you could do what Israel couldn't do. Well, no, but I do think Jesus could do what Israel couldn't do. Because you know what? We can't keep the law either. Our pureness that we have, our cleanness that we have, our righteousness that we have, it is not a righteousness that came from our keeping of the law. It's a righteousness that was given to us, that was imputed to us, by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, by his blood, and it cleansed us from all our sins. It cleansed us from all our filthiness. So understand, one of these days the bridegroom's coming back, and when he comes the next time, those who are of faith, they're going to be ready. They're going to be ready for the bridegroom. They're, you know why? Because they're going to be clean. They're going to have oil in their lamps. Why? Because of what Jesus Christ did. So 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, Paul speaking says, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest by any means as a serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit which ye have not received, or another gospel which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with them. Paul said, I want you to be a chaste virgin when Christ comes. And you know what? If you go and you are going after another gospel... If you're adding works to salvation, guess what? You're not going to be clean when he returns. You're not going to be accepted when he returns. And let me tell you, there's going to be a, there's a lot of churches out there. There's a lot of quote unquote Christians out there that are going to be rejected when the bridegroom comes. You know why? Because they're practicing a work salvation. They're practicing another gospel. You know, they acknowledge Jesus Christ. They even acknowledge his death, burial, and resurrection, but they have added works to faith and as a result, when Jesus Christ comes, he's going to look at them. And he's not going to want them. And you know, he's going to turn away from them. The ones that he's going to accept are going to be those who were of faith. So when Christ came in his first coming, Israel was not ready. They thought they could be purified through their keeping of the law. And they thought they had succeeded. But what was Jesus' opinion at his coming? Because here's, again, here's what we've got to understand about his coming. There was a lot to it. It wasn't just like a single moment. It wasn't just a single event. A lot happened at Christ coming on earth. And specifically, here's what, here's the other thing too. I wish I would have had, I had time to set up, but the Olivet Discourse parables in Matthew chapter 25, the real story starts way before at his triumphal entry. At his triumphal entry, that was such a crucial time. That was the coming of Christ. At his triumphal entry, when he showed up, that was, that was his coming. That was him coming, looking for his bride. But look at what it says in Luke chapter 19, verse 41. It says, And when he had came near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, 
but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, encompass thee around thee round, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. This was the coming of Christ, and they weren't ready. They didn't know. When he came in on that triumphal entry, there were people singing Hosanna. I don't think they fully understand what they were doing and why they were saying it, but then most of the city didn't like it. The Pharisees didn't like it. They rebuked them. They rebuked the people. They were trying to get Jesus to stop them from doing that. Jesus came into the temple fulfilling the prophecy of Malachi chapter 3 and many other prophecies from Isaiah. And when he came in there, folks, he didn't offer a sacrifice when he came in there. You know what he did? He drove them out. He took a whip and he said, my house should be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of thieves. There weren't people from all over the world there. There were supposed to, when Jesus came for his bride, there were supposed to be people from every nation, kindred, and tongue. God has always wanted a bride that consisted of people from all over the world. But you know what? When he got there, all there was was Jews. Jews wouldn't let anybody else around the temple. And you know what? They weren't even ready. They weren't even acceptable. And Jesus rejected what he saw that day. They were not ready for him, and he didn't want them. They were not clean. They were not purified. And again, we understand they could not be purified by the things of the law. We understand that. But they could have been purified by Jesus Christ if they would have called on him, if they would have accepted him. He could have, and I don't know exactly how it would have went down. I mean, I know he would have gone to the cross either way. But, you know, he could have, you know, he, if, if they would have called on him and accepted him, he could have paid for their sins right there. Had they been being obedient to him, I think, the, in my opinion, I think the Romans just would have put him to death. And then I think possibly he could have, you know, he would have risen just like he did and maybe set things up right then. But Israel didn't have any oil in their lamps. And what does that mean exactly? We'll, we'll talk about that. It, there's a little more to it than what the, you know, 3.1, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come into his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant, whom he delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. This was the day of his visitation. That was the day of his coming. That was this, this was to be fulfilled at the triumphal entry. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness." Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years, and I will come near to you to judgment. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, and against the adulterers, and against the false swears, and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, that turn aside the stranger from his right, and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. But you know what? He didn't do any of those things, because the strangers weren't the only bad ones. Israel was bad too. All of them... Had, they had messed up, and so because of that, you know, he ended up, he didn't offer up a sacrifice with the sons of Levi. He didn't purify the sons of Levi. You know what he did? He offered up himself as a sacrifice. He did everything himself. But here's what you got to understand, too. I don't even have time to go to this passage, but remember when the disciples asked Jesus, the scribes say that Elias must first come. And Jesus flat out told them, they're right, Elias must first come. But guess what? He had come. It was John the Baptist. And then you know what Jesus said? And they killed him and they're going to kill me too. Okay? Understand these prophecies had contingencies on them. These prophecies were assuming Israel is going to do what they've been commanded to do. But they didn't do it. They failed. Okay? Now, you say, well, you're saying these prophecies didn't get fulfilled then. And I'm... I, I think we all understand this here, but for somebody who might watch this, understand Israel did fulfill them because Jesus Christ was of Israel and he fulfilled those things. And so understand for you to be a beneficiary of these things, you have to be in Christ and not just physically from Israel. I could talk a lot about that. I don't want to get sidetracked on that. But when Christ came, okay, notice though when Christ came, even though Israel was not ready, even though they were not to be accepted, he didn't consume them, did he? He didn't consume them. Now, he, he could have. They deserved it. But, you know, you know, why didn't he consume? You know why? 
Well, verse 6 says, For I am the Lord, I change not, therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed. You know, in Malachi, in the book of Malachi, Jesus, or what God, the prophet is doing here in this book is he is showing them, or basically this prophecy, it's, it's big because it's a fulfillment of prophecy because at this point in their history, they've been brought back into the land, the temple has been rebuilt, they have their sacrifices and everything have been reinstituted as prophesied. And you know what? Even though God restored them to the land, God gave them everything back, they were doing a terrible job. They were failing miserably. And the prophet is calling them out for it. And he's saying, you know, for I'm the Lord, I choose not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. You deserve to be consumed right now. But God's not doing that. You know why? Because he's a merciful God. And when Jesus Christ came on that day, they deserved to be consumed again. But you know what? He didn't consume him, did he? You know what he did instead? He offered up himself as a sacrifice. And guess what? He still hasn't consumed them. You know why? They can still be saved, can't they? They can still be saved. But that final judgment is coming one of these days. And so the truth is, at Christ's coming, there was only a very small remnant that was ready. There were some virgins that were ready for him. And so in Acts 13.38... It says, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold, ye despisers, and wonder and perish. For lo, I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. So notice how the here in Acts, after all these things have taken place, he's warning Israel, first off, letting him know that you cannot be justified by the law of Moses. You can't be doing that. And if you do not receive Jesus Christ, all those things that were spoken of in the prophets are going to come upon you. And notice how he says, beware. Now, Zionists will tell you, good things are going to happen to Israel, according to the Old Testament prophets. Well, that's not the way they interpret those in the book of Acts. They said, if you don't accept Christ, all those things that the prophet said are going to come on you. That was a negative thing. That's, it's bad things that are going to happen. And the truth is, those who were not ready at Christ's first coming, they lost the kingdom and they were cut off from Israel and lost their inheritance forever. But those who were ready... They were sealed till the day of redemption and they will receive their inheritance at the second coming. And they also went on to serve in Christ's kingdom, his spiritual kingdom here on this earth. Now, this, is, this takes us to the part about the oil. Okay? Now, what does the oil represent? Holy Spirit, right? But you know what? There's actually a little more to it than that. Okay? Futures are right when they say the oil represents the Holy Spirit. Okay? But... Let me ask you this. Why is that significant? What, what was the purpose of oil in this story? To keep the lamp lit, right? That's the point of the oil, so the lamp can be lit. Okay? You don't have oil just to have oil. You have oil so you can keep a lamp lit. So what does that mean? Okay, what's the point of that? So it's, it's important that we understand that part too. And I do believe that the oil represents the Holy Spirit. But understand, we have the Holy Spirit for a reason too. Not just so we can go to heaven. Not just so we can have it. You know why? Because we're supposed to keep our lamps lit. We're supposed to keep our light shining. So there's a little more to it than just this being ready is, you know, being saved versus not saved. It's about that oil. It's about that lamp being lit. Isaiah 56.1. This is another prophecy about Christ's triumphal entry. About Christ's coming. It says, Thus saith the Lord, Keep ye judgment and do justice, for my salvation is near to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man that doeth this, and the son of man that layeth hold on it, that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it, and keepeth his hand from doing any evil. Neither let the son of the stranger that hath joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord hath utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. We understand that you know when the law was originally given, that there were laws that kept certain people out it, because of the nation they were from and even physical problems. And here it's saying, don't even let the eunuch say, I'm a dry tree. Don't let any people say, I'm a stranger. I'm cut off from the people. 
And all these things were given uh, in prophecies about Israel that were referring to Israel's restoration too because it was only a matter of time. Israel was going to eventually be destroyed. They were going to lose the things of the temple. All these judgments had been pronounced on them way before they even happened. But within those prophecies was also prophecies about a restoration of Israel. And, so, and when the, the restoration of Israel already happened, they got back their land, the temple was rebuilt, and when those things happened, there were some things that changed, and God was wanting people from all over to be included because God's always wanted a bride from all over the world. God didn't just start looking for a Gentile bride you know, at the New Testament like the dispensationalists teach. He was always looking for people. Here we see it here. But understand... They had to join Israel during that time. They had to become Jews, and there was a way that they would do that because they were the people of God at that time. And before the Reformation, um, th this was how you would do it. You know, you would get circumcised, you'd keep the Sabbath, you'd do those things. But verse 4, For thus saith the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths, and choose the things that please me, and take hold of my covenant, even unto them will I give in mine house, and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Okay, because understand too, if you're just physically of Israel during this time, you can be cut off, can't you? But those who get grafted in or saved, they're never cut off. See, that's why we're never going to be cut off. You know why? Because we became children by adoption when we, had, when we put our faith in Christ. Those who were just physically of there, they were able to be rejected. They were able to be cut off. And they were cut off. You know why? Because they rejected Christ. And so that's an important thing to understand. And also the sons of the stranger that joined themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord to be his servants. Everyone that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant. Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called an house of prayer for all people. The Lord God, which gathereth the outcasts of Israel, saith, Yet will I gather others to him beside those that are gathered unto him. So right there is the passage Jesus was referring to when he said, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And you know what Jesus said too? And he said, I'm going to accept their sacrifices. Now let me ask you, how, how is he going to fulfill that? How does he accept our sacrifices? When is this going to happen? Are we going to go, well, this must be like a millennial thing, you know, because when they bring back the sacrifices. No, here's, here's the, you know, you know what our sacrifice is? Jesus Christ. That's what we claim. That's what we bring. That, that's our offering. Jesus Christ is our offering. And that's accepted. So again, these Old Testament prophecies, they do, their fulfillment is all found in Jesus Christ. Everybody's always looking at them through this keeping of the law. They're all found in Christ. And so, Jesus is rebuking Israel at his triumphal entry. He is still, he's rebuking them in Matthew 23, big time. I wish we had time to go through Matthew 23. In Matthew 24, he is showing basically the, what is coming for Israel. And that is their complete destruction. And in chapter 25, he's giving parables about this. And ultimately, what Jesus was so mad about, not only were they not ready, they, were not, they had not done what he had commanded them to do. They had not been a light. They had not reached the world. They had not done the service of the Lord. And in Matthew 5, 13, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, preaching to all Jews. You know what he said? You're the salt of the earth, verse 13. But if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is then forth good for nothing, but to be cast out and trodden under the foot of men. You're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So at the coming of Christ, Israel had not accomplished the work they were supposed to do. They had not been a light. And so because of their failure... They lost the kingdom. Look at what it says in Matthew 21, in verse 33. He says, Here another parable, there was a certain householder which planted a vineyard, hedged it about, and digged a wine press in it, and built a tower, and lent it, let it out to husbandmen, and went into a far journey. And now, 
Everybody wants to make this about what was happening then in that century. But no, understand, this is, this is reference to, to what God did when he gave Israel his law, when he gave them a land. God gave them all these things so they could be alike. God gave Israel something to do. And folks, they didn't do it. They didn't do it. You know what they were constantly doing? They were constantly serving other gods. They're making groves to other gods. They're building idols. They're doing all these things. He's telling these stories to the Jews, rebuking them. But we're like acting like, no, these are church parables. Well, then, you know what? No wonder they were all standing there looking stupid back then. You know, because what are you even talking about? New Testament church, that's not even a thing yet. What is it? You know, no, he's doing this in rebuke to them. And the, the part, their problem was they didn't understand because they, they had no faith. They didn't believe in Christ, and they couldn't see their sins. They couldn't see their failures. But it says, but when the time of the fruit drew near, okay, remember when Jesus, around that same time, he went to that fig tree, and there was no fruit, and he cursed it? Listen, this time, this was Christ coming. He came looking for fruit. Did he find any fruit? No, he didn't. And the time of the fruit drew near. He sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent two other servants, more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But the last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. Now, folks, this is not about the New Testament church. Okay? The son was sent to Israel. Okay, yeah, they're not listening to the prophets, but they'll re- the, the prophets, but they'll reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. Who does the inheritance belong to, ladies and gentlemen? It belongs to Jesus. He's the heir. He's the seed. And it says, And they caught him, and cast him out of the vineyard, and slew him. When the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? going to give them the land back because it's always been theirs that's their inheritance god's not done with israel i mean folks this doesn't get any clearer does it they say unto him he will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen which shall end render him the fruits in their season guess what the next group of husbandmen are going to get it right you know what? Want to know why the next group of husbands going to get it right? Because they got oil in their lamps. We have something Israel doesn't have. We got we got oil in our lamps, ladies and gentlemen. We have the Holy Spirit. Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say unto you that the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. But when they sought to lay hands on them, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. So because of their failure, because they were not a light, because there was no oil in their lamps, and, and, because, and with no oil, folks, you have no light. With, the, with no light, you're not going to reach anybody. And they hadn't done that. And so they lost the kingdom. And Jesus ended up leaving his vineyard to other husbandmen. And you know what? We, you, you want to go into pictures? You want to go into some typology? Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 3. Now, this doesn't prove anything. Okay? But I, I believe that the story of the high priest Eli is a picture of replacement theology and first samuel 3 1 watch this and the child samuel ministered unto the lord before eli and the word of the lord was precious in those days and there was no open vision and i wish we had time to talk about the comparisons of jesus christ and samuel we don't even have time to get into that and it came to pass at that time when eli was laid down in his place and his eyes began to wax dim that he could not see and ere the lamp of god went out in the temple of the lord and where the ark of god was and samuel was laid down to sleep. And you know the story what happens. The lamp goes out, and then what happens? God speaks to Samuel. And you know what he ends up telling Samuel? He says in verse 11, Behold, I will do a thing in Israel at which both the ears of everyone that heareth it shall tingle. 
In that day I will perform against Eli all the things which I have spoken concerning his house. When I begin, I will also make an end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth, because his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. And therefore I have sworn unto the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be purged with sacrifice nor offering forever. Because Eli let the lamp go out. Because he let there be no oil in the lamp. It was one of their jobs. They were to keep that lamp lit forever. He let it go out. And the night he let it go out, God prophesied to Samuel, you let Eli know, I'm done with him. Now, here's the thing about that. While God was done with him then, it was years later before Eli died. And not only did Eli die, Hophni and Phinehas died. And eventually... In 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 27, it says, And Solomon thrust out Abiathar from being priest unto the Lord, that he might fulfill the word of the Lord, which he spake concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. And, he, and so you know what? Eli, the house of Eli, which Eli means lofty, was replaced with Zadok, the priest, and Zadok means just. And you know what? Isn't it interesting how you got a bunch of people that are so stinking lofty, so stinking proud, can't see all the problems that they have, couldn't see they were sinners. Jesus replaced them. And you know what he did? He took a bunch of sorry Gentiles, but yet were still, they were just in the eyes of God because they were of faith. They saw they were a sinner. They received cleansing. They received justification through Jesus Christ. And so I believe Eli is a picture of that, the way God took the priesthood from the house of Eli and he gave it to another, gave it to Zadok, who was also in the line of Aaron too, but another branch of the family. That was God. Uh, I believe that was a, a good picture of that. And it, it, interesting enough, it was finalized when he let the light go out. And that's what Israel failed to do. They didn't have any oil in their lamps and they were not being a light to the world. And so those of Israel, of Israel who were not ready for Christ's coming and lost the kingdom were replaced by those who were ready and would actually have oil in their lamps so they could actually get the work done that the Lord wanted. Now, what made, again, what made those wise virgins so much more capable than the unwise virgins? Yeah, it's, it's the Holy Spirit. It's not about our power, ladies and gentlemen. You know, it's not about our power. And since they were saved, they ended up getting filled at Pentecost, didn't they? They ended, up getting, they ended up getting empowered by the Holy Ghost. And as a result of it, and you know what? That group reached the world, didn't they? I mean, we are still here today. Here we are in America. People of God, saved people. Why? Because of some people let their light shine. You know how they were able to do it? They had oil in their lamp. Okay, we didn't get it from Israel. There's still people trying to credit Israel for us getting the gospel. Okay, no, it was... Thankfully, some people who had oil in their lamps, it was some wise virgins that were a part of Israel. You know, they, yeah, they did start it, but the nation itself failed and they were rejected and they were cut off. So when the bridegroom comes the second time, we will be ready, not by our works of the law, but by the works of Jesus Christ. There will be a saved remnant on earth because of the Holy Spirit that works through us. We do have oil in our lamps. And guess what? The proof that we have oil in our lamps is that we're still shining. People are still being saved today. There are lights all over this world. And when the husbandman returns, there's going to be some fruit next time. And I thank God for that. And so back to, the, back to this parable again. So it says, but the wise, in verse 4, the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. This was the state of Israel during their time. And at midnight, there was a cry made. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for ye know not neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man cometh. Now, right here, 
This is what might cause some to say this is only referring to the future. But the truth is that Christ's first coming, it wasn't just a single moment or a single day. He was still there. And I think, and I think you could apply this through all the events of his first coming, including Pentecost and even the destruction of Jerusalem. I mean, that was judgment from God that came on that day. That You could say the judgment that came on Jerusalem in 70 A.D., that was the final results of our, you know, their payment for what Jesus found you know, 40 years earlier at his triumphal entry. And so as a result of what happened at his coming, 70 A.D., was their reward. That was, that was the reward that they received. And so Christ's first coming ended up being a coming in judgment for Jerusalem because they rejected him. And we need to understand there is a second coming where he's going to come in judgment on the whole earth. And everyone needs to be ready by getting saved. And so to sum up the parable of the virgins, it's basically showing how those who weren't ready for Christ's coming were going to be shut out of the kingdom. And it didn't Paul teach how the natural branches were cut off. And so the, that kingdom, it was taken from those of Israel who were not of faith, but it stayed with those who trusted in Christ as the Messiah. So again, there was an immediate spiritual fulfillment. Spiritually, Jesus Christ came in that first century, didn't he? Spiritually, Jesus Christ set up his kingdom. I mean, are we not a part of the kingdom of, of God today? Spiritually, we're a part of that kingdom. Now, guess what? A physical kingdom is coming. Okay? Jesus Christ came and, you know, and he did. He started a work spiritually during that time. But one of these days, he's going to come in the flesh and he's going to dwell with us and he's going to come in his glory. And we're going to see when it gets to the next parables too, where it gets a little more specific, I believe, about the second coming of Christ. But we can't ignore what spiritually took place on that day. Spiritually, a fulfillment of this took place. Spiritually, you had some wise virgins and you had some foolish virgins. You had, and as a result, they were shut out. They were separated. And the same thing's going to happen now that the gospel's gone to the whole world. Jesus is going to do the same thing at his second coming with this nation, you could say, that he did with the nation of Israel at his first coming. He's going to come, and you know what he's going to do? He's going to be looking for virgins. Guess what? That's going to be us. Not because of our works, but because of our faith. Because of the Holy Spirit. He's going to be looking for fruit. Guess what? There's going to be fruit. You know why? Because we're not, we're not reaching people through the sacrifices of animals. We're not reaching people through the works of the law. We're reaching people through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and what he did. So there is, there's going to be a better result at, the, at the, his second coming. At his second coming, when he, when he checks up on us, one of these days, he's going to make a triumphal entry. When he came at his first coming, that triumphal entry, he actually came lowly, riding upon an ass and a colt the foal of an ass. You know, but at his second coming, the Bible says he's coming with power and great glory. And, folks, people get mad at this, but, folks, we're not bragging when we talk about, about us accomplishing what Israel never accomplished. We couldn't do anything without the Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus told the disciples? For without me, you can do nothing. And he specifically said that when he was talking about the vine and the branches. The branches that you cannot do anything except you abide in the vine. Israel was trying to do everything separate from Jesus Christ. And you know what? They produced nothing. And we will pr we're, we're producing, ladies and gentlemen, because of Jesus Christ. We are, we are, our lights are shining because there's oil in our lamps because of Jesus Christ. And so it's not wrong for us to take this parable and to warn people, hey, you better get some oil in your lamp because when Jesus Christ returns, if you're not saved, he's not taking you. You're not going to be accepted. You're going to be rejected. So it's not, it's not wrong to do that, but let's not ignore the fact that Jesus was specifically dealing with the people that were under his judgment and that were going to lose the kingdom and were going to be shut out. And I know, there, I know there's a lot there 
there's a lot that I just kind of I kind of threw at you. But uh, what I intend to do in the next couple of weeks is just kind of give more proof of some of these things, more proof. And so basically what we're looking at tonight is just kind of both sides, the spiritual fulfillment from the first century. And you know what? The physical fulfillment's coming too. Okay, you haven't been lied to when people are preaching about this and talking about it, you know, all about Christ's second coming. They're not lying. They're right. They're right too. You know, the, those things are coming. And so we can, without a doubt, we can take all these things, apply it to the second coming. We will see the physical fulfillment of those things. Those who are saved will be taken. Those who are not will be left behind. It will be too late. Dispensationalism tells you that the Jews are going to get saved anyway, but Matthew was written to, it is true that it was written to the Jews. And he, I mean, folks, that, par, that parable in Matthew chapter 21 said he's going to miserably destroy those wicked men. Talk about God breaking his promise to Israel. I mean, isn't, isn't he going to do exactly what he said he's going to do there? That's, that's what I believe he's going to do. And so, anyway, and, and, you know, and, there, and let me just say one more thing with that. There was a physical fulfillment of destroying them. It was in 70 AD. Okay, there was, there was, but you know what? There's going to be another fulfillment of that when everybody who's associated with that system, that Antichrist system, all those who join up with the Antichrist, they're all going to get it too. So there is another destruction coming, and that's going to be the worldwide one. Okay? The, everything that happened in that first century to Israel was a shadow of what's coming for the whole world. And most people are ignoring, you know, what happened in the first century, making it all about the future, and it's causing some things to not make sense. It's important that we understand both sides of it and how it works, and that is consistent with how prophecy has played out throughout the Bible. And we'll, we'll show more examples of that next week. So with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray this message was a help and a blessing to everyone. Lord, I thank you so much for what you've done for us, that, uh, Lord, that our... Our purity, Lord, our salvation, it's not based on our works. It's based completely on what you've done. And I pray you'll help us to be faithful in spreading that message, to be faithful in uh, letting our light shine and just sharing that gospel with as many people as possible. In your name we pray. Amen.